Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast. We've got some great questions, again, I trust, from our team. And I've got some from Patreons, too. A patron asked me where he could go to get access to my videos and such. She said, hey, Ron, I'm not sure where to go to get access to your videos and such. Website? Facebook? (laughs) The answer is yes. I have a Facebook page. It's Ron Spomer Outdoors. And I have Instagram. I think that's just called Ron Spomer. I honestly don't know what it's called, but I think if you look for Ron Spomer on Instagram, you should find those. Mostly just photographs that I put up there. Um, I do commentary now and then on Facebook as well as videos and photos. And then, of course, the website is ronspomeroutdoors.com. And we have blogs on there, a lot of my written stuff there, plus some guest bloggers from time to time, including a, a really informative gentleman from Germany who gives us perspective on cartridges and hunting in Europe, which is kind of fun. Um, let's see where else. Well, you can find me sometimes in the print magazines. You know, my career uh, launched way back in 1976, writing for the outdoor magazines. And I have been in uh, literally dozens over the years. These days, I've cut back quite a bit, but you can still find me in the NRA's American Hunter magazine, Sporting Classics magazine, and Sports the Field magazine. And uh, Minnesota Outdoor News. I still enjoy writing for those guys from time to time. And you never know where I might pop up after. Just depends on what uh, they invite me to do and what I feel like contributing. Uh, so uh, yeah, thanks for that. This gentleman's name, uh, Patreon, his name was Ronald. So we're kind of on the same page. And another patron, Andrew, has a good idea that I want to hit up on. This is what he said. He said, "Hey, I'm wondering if you could do a video comparing a 308 Winchester to a 358 Winchester, and another on the 30 out six and 35 Whalen, and that is really a good idea for a comparison because those are offshoots of one another. The 308 was opened up to take a 358 diameter bullet to make the 358 Winchester, the same as the 30 out six was necked up to take the 358 bullet for the 35 Whalen. So it's probably going to be an eye opener for everyone, including me, to see what differences that made. Does it really make them hit harder. Uh, They obviously are going to be carrying heavier bullets downrange. Do they have enough powder capacity to make sense out of them? So we will do that soon on one of our regular videos on Ron Spomer Outdoors. All right. I want to appreciate that. I really enjoy uh, the ideas that our patrons send us. 
we try to jump on those as soon as we can. If you are interested in supporting us on Patreon, just go to patreon.com, Ron Spomer Outdoors, and you should be able to join up, be one of our supporting members. We sure appreciate it. Now, here is something from a gentleman named Peter, and he is referencing one of my um, main channel videos called Shooting Cold and High. Uh, yes, I did that one oh, one or two winters ago when it was really cold out. Show what happens when you shoot in cold, what's going to happen with your ballistic trajectories. It's just going to have a big influence on it. And I think I shot out to 400, 450 yards or something with that one. Um, and this is what Peter asks. Hey, Ron. We were on a subarctic caribou hunt 10 years ago in January. Wow, I didn't know they did that. There happened to be what they call an Arctic outflow. This is a blast of extreme cold from the Arctic. The thermometer hit 48 centigrade or 50, no, minus 48 degrees centigrade or 54, minus 54 Fahrenheit on one day. Of the many extreme things that happened under those conditions, one thing stands out. My partner and I were traveling on a skidoo. A lone caribou was walking across a pond. From a small hill at 150 yards, I fired one shot. We both looked at the rifle because the noise was like nothing I've ever heard. It made noise, but not a blast. My partner says, what happened? Did it fire? However, the caribou had collapsed mid-stride, hit right behind the front shoulder. Other weird things about extreme cold. No hand loads worked. Expert hand loaders, properly sealed cases, and etc. But they didn't work. Wow. Some rifled actions will not open or close. Most are difficult to open or close. Light pin strikes happen, even when they're properly degreased, which means you take all the grease out so it doesn't gum up inside in the cold. Uh, thankfully, that weather only lasted for one day, and then we were back to normal. <laughs> Minus 30 degrees centigrade. <laughs> wow. You know, that is uh, good information. That's really not a question. That's just some great information. When you're hunting in extreme cold, and I mean, that is extreme. I have never hunted any colder than about 30 below Fahrenheit. And that was painful enough. I'm not looking forward to trying 50 or 54. But yes, he's, he's addressing all of this concerns, which is mechanical. Is your gun, gun going to still work? You You may need a heavier spring on your firing pin. You do need to degrease everything. Um, and then I think the problem he probably had with his hand loads is the primers were not hot enough to ignite. So you might want to be loading a magnum primer where you would normally load a standard primer. Um, that was one tip that I would throw out, even though I haven't needed to do it. But that sounds like what's going on with that shot not even going off. And that could happen with factory loads as well. I've heard of factory loads not going off in extreme cold. Um, so, you know, it's like trying to start a car or a fire or anything anything in, in extreme cold. You have got to bring the temperature of your fuel up to the burning point, um, whether it's with a match on firewood or, or gunpowder with a primer. So something to consider. Now about that sound, not not being loud. I have noticed that too. And I've always attributed it to snow for one thing. If there's snow on the ground, it's like a big fluffy blanket and absorbs a lot of that. But what about just cold air? I have noticed in the cold, it seemed like the shots just aren't as loud. Get to scratching my head over this one. And I'm thinking because it's more dense, cold air is more dense, and that the energy of the bullet, the sound energy, 
is literally a wave of energy and it's absorbed by the atmosphere. That's why you can't hear things from 40 miles away necessarily. You know, everything dwindles because it's working using its energy to push the atmosphere out of the way. Quite similar to what a bullet is doing, I guess. So it might be that that extremely cold, extremely dense air is just sucking up that energy, almost absorbing it like a blanket or a big cotton, almost like a, a suppressor or a silencer in the front of your barrel. That would be my theory. Now, if anyone out there absolutely knows this, I'd sure like to hear it. Now, denser air, I think sound moves faster in thinner air. We know that. So the sound wouldn't be going as quickly, but it's probably just losing its boom to the density of the air. The air is just sort of sucking it up. But yeah, I bet that was a pretty interesting phenomenon. <laughs> Go and then the caribou falls over and it doesn't even sound like your rifle went off. <laughs> Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Okay. Now, let's go to some more questions. And this is Patrick from Pennsylvania. Hey, I have a Winchester Model 70 22250. Has a 1 in 14 twist. That means for every 14 inches is a complete spiral. Um, it shoots 45 grain bullets and half-inch groups. Well, bravo. That's great. But the barrel is getting worn. I'm looking to replace it with the Bergara HMR. But that twist is one in nine. I've seen that some people have had good results with 55 grain and some had to jump to 60 or 65. What do you think a one nine twist would work? How well would it work with a 55 grain bullet? 55 grain bullet. Okay. Um, I think it would work just fine. I have a one in eight twist 22 to 50 Ackley improved and I could stabilize um, 40 grain bullets from 40 grain hollow points that I've shot under MOA, and I wasn't even trying. I was just fire forming some brass and shooting 
rather quickly, and I kept 10 shots in a minute of an a a of angle with a tiny, light little bullet. So I think you'll be fine. Now, if you're trying to win some sort of a bench rest competition, the advice is always to slow your spin rate down to minimal um, for the bench rest shooting. But for hunting and you want some versatility in your cartridge and its loads, I think you're with a one and nine twist, my goodness, you should be able to go up to probably 70 grain bullets at the upper end. Depends on how long they are. Remember, all of this has to do with the bullet length. You stabilize it, the longer it is, the faster your twist has to be to stabilize it. So it's not just the mass of the bullet, the weight. We always say the heavier bullets need faster twist. That's just because they're going to be longer if they're heavier. But if you make them a flat nose or a round nose, they could be pretty short and still be heavy. So the high BC, long tapered bullets, those are the ones that are going to give you some trouble. So yeah, I'm thinking with a one and nine, you're probably going to get up close to a 70 grain high BC bullet. And you shouldn't have any trouble stabilizing the 55s. You might find that your 45s and 40s, maybe even your 50s are not maximally accurate. But again, for hunting, I've never seen it to be a concern. Maybe for target shooting. Thanks on that one, Patrick. From Arizona, we have someone named Heber. Where would you recommend shot placement on a coyote if you're shooting with a 22 Winchester Magnum, 50 grain bullet, 125 yards away, no wind? Well, you don't have to compensate for the wind, so you can hold that on there. Depending on how you zero that, you should be able to hold center chest. Um, I would put it right behind the shoulder or even on the shoulder for a chest shot. That gives you your biggest target in case you pull a shot or who knows what happens. But the trajectory curve of that wind mag, 22 wind mag, if you're zeroed about an inch and a half high um, at 100 yards, 125 yards is no problem. You're going to get it into the boiler room on that one. But check that bullet, find out exactly what it's doing. You didn't give me its ballistics coefficient or its speed. It's probably setting off at about 1,900 to 2,000 feet per second, I would think. Um, but if you can figure that stuff out and get the BC rating of that bullet, you can run that through a ballistics calculator and it will give you your trajectory curve. So you'll know just how far that bullet drops at 125 yards, depending on what distance you zeroed it. But you should be good out to 125 yards with that 22 wind mag. Edward from Wisconsin. I have a question about the 350 Legend and now the new 360 Buckhammer. I've read that the 350 Legend wouldn't work in a lever action tube feed rifle, but now the new 360 buck hammer will work in a lever action. Can you explain why the 350 Legend wouldn't work in a lever action? Is it the cause of the, the pointed bullets? It's factory loaded with something to do with case dimensions. Is it the case dimensions and how it has no rim? And then why would it be different for the 444 Marlin? Because they don't have a rim. Okay, lots of questions about that. And they're good ones, Ed. I often wondered that myself. I don't think it's impossible. Um, to have a tubular fed magazine rifle that would function with rimless cartridges, which is what we're talking about, rimmed versus rimless. Traditionally, the tubular fed lever action rifles like the Model 94 Winchester, the Marlin 336 and the older ones, 1895s and all of them, um, they always had rimmed cartridges. That's because in those days, up until 1988, all cartridges were rimmed. I think it was the Germans with their 8mm Mauser uh, who first had a rimless cartridge. So they were set up with little mechanisms inside to control the spring-fed uh, cartridges in that tubular magazine coming back. So when you ran the action, there's a mechanical lever there or something that 
blocks the cartridges from coming out of the tubular magazine and getting up onto the feed ramp to load, et cetera, et cetera, as you run that action. And it has to be perfectly timed, obviously. So I suspect that they could not reliably catch in a rimless cartridge coming out of those tubes. But some of the modern Marlins, and modern in the 20th century, the 336, for instance, I don't know exactly when they figured it out and started using it, but I know by 1906 or 8, 1906 or 8, when the 35 Remington cartridge came out, they were able to function in a tubular magazine with no rim. So, it can be done, but I've never known it to be done on the Winchesters. They've always stuck with the 30-30-32 special, 44, uh, yeah, the 357, let's see, what, 45-70, pretty much all rimmed. So I don't know. Anyone out there who really understands this, I've just never torn one apart to see, but that's got to be what it is. Whatever mechanism is controlling the cartridges coming out of that tubular magazine every time you cycle it, that's what's going on there. So you can find lever actions that are going to handle rimless cartridges. You just have to snoop around to see which ones they are. Yeah, but I noticed that 360 buck camera, that looks to me like it's the 3030, tweaked a little bit, changed a little bit, and obviously straightened out and make it a 35 caliber so you can use it in the straight-walled case uh, states. That's the whole idea there. So um, I've got one coming, and as soon as we get one, we're going to do a review on it. should be fun. It will be fun to see how it compares to the old 3030. All right, I hope I came close to an explanation on that one, Ed. But again, if anyone out there really has a scoop and can explain it cleanly to me, write in, give us the, and I'll read it in the next uh, next episode. The Wiz 007. That sounds like an interesting character from Montreal, Canada. Do you consider the 6.5 Creedmoor powerful enough to go hunting for moose? <laughs> yes, I do. But then you have to understand that I am not strung out on power. In my long experience with hunting, it's not so much the power as the bullet placement and the bullet performance once it gets there. Power is needed to get the bullet to the target, to penetrate the target, and reach the vitals. But what kills the animal is hemorrhaging from that projectile, tearing uh, the vitals, damaging the tissues. That's what's going on. And you don't need a lot of power to do it. A lot of folks say, well, you get that bullet in there and it expands and it does what it's supposed to do for contacting the tissues and causing hemorrhaging. And then it needs to stop against the skin on the other side because then it's wasted all of this energy inside of the animal doing a lot of work and really killing that animal. And then I think about all the animals that I've done that with that have run off as if they were untouched until their blood pressure dropped and they fell over and they died from what usually seems to do the trick, which is blood loss. The brain no longer gets fed fresh oxygenated blood, so it has to die. Um, so now, does that mean the 6.5 Creedmoor with a fairly light bullet, and you're looking at around a 140-grain bullet, is that enough to terminate a moose? Yes, with the right shot and the right bullet, it is. And I know folks who have done it, um, and quite a few of them, and some of them even at what I consider to be irresponsibly long distances. And there's not much left for energy or power in those bullets at extreme distances, but it's, it's been done. Now, I'm sure... We can also say that it's been done wrong and they've lost the moose. But then the same thing can happen with a 300 Magnum or anything else. It's just, 
There's no absolutes here, folks. There's no guarantees. Yes, it does make, it's prudent to use a larger caliber on a larger animal. I don't think it's absolutely necessary. And it's been proven time and time and time again. But shot placement becomes hypercritical when you're using a smaller bullet. You do have a little bit of fudge factor with a bigger bullet. But seriously, if power did the trick, you could shoot an animal in a non-vital spot, keep the bullet inside the animal's body, and it should kill it from the power, right? So I'm thinking of a paunch shot, for instance. Isn't going to happen. You've got to have that hemorrhaging unless you hit the central nervous system. So, yes, the 6.5 Creedmoor can take a moose. Do I recommend it as top choice? Certainly do not. But if it's between that and a magnum that you cannot shoot accurately, I would rather have the smaller bullet in the right place than the bigger one in the wrong place. Good question, Wiz. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Here in, oh goody, another one from Australia. (laughs) Seems like I get one at least every time from Australia. We got a lot of fans there and I really love it. This is Trent from Australia. Hey Ron, I'm a big fan of yours. You put out some amazing and informative content. Well, thank you, Trent. Appreciate that. I have a question about reloading for my Winchester Model 70 in a 308. The uh, hunting projectiles I use, I can't get them anymore. Oh, no, I can't get them anywhere near the lands of my rifle. He's talking about seating them out when he's loading. Um, They'd only be slightly in the case. Okay, so he's got his case. He seats the bullet. And if he wants that bullet to be right out there touching the lands where the ramps up to hit the lands in the bore, which a lot of guys like to do for precision, the bullet is barely in the neck of the cartridge. So he's got a short bullet. That's his problem. Or he's got an extra long throat. That's his problem, one of the two. Am I better off seating them to the standard 308-inch measurements? That would be, what is it, 2.8, I think, is the overall length of a 308 Winchester. Should he just do that, or where should he start his load development? Leave it at that depth and then test it, different powders, try to seat it deeper, what? Okay, (laughs) a lot of questions. Yeah, you're kind of up against it here, Trent. Um, I don't know what uh, rifle you have and how the throat if it's really an extra long throat or not, someone may have had that thing built with a long throat to handle longer bullets. So your one option is to go with your longer bullets so you can seat them out. The other is to just use your standard dimensions and see how accurate it is or isn't. You know, a lot of times you can you can be quite a ways off the lands and you really don't lose much for hunting accuracy. Probably for bench rest work, you would. So the idea with the, the bench rest shooters Folks looking for extreme precision, they want that bullet, once you've chambered the round, they want that bullet to either just be touching the lands 
so it's perfectly lined up and it doesn't start off crooked and then slam into them. Or just a hair off, just a tiny, tiny little bit off the lands so it doesn't have much of a jump. And uh, then they build their loads up because your pressure goes up in the chamber if you fire a shell where the bullet is already stuck in the rifling because there's more inertia to overcome. You don't have that freeboard jump of the bullet getting started. You got to remember the gases explode and they expand and that pushes the bullet and it has to get started moving. It's like pushing a heavy weight. It's a lot of energy required to get it started. So you're putting a lot of pressure onto that brick until you get him sliding. And then it's a little easier to keep him going. That's what's happening with your bullets. So if you have a big, heavy bullet, got to give it a little room to get going or you're going to get over pressure when it hits that block. So when you're doing this work with seeding your bullets out near the lands or in the lands or something, you need to start low with your powder densities and gradually work your way up while you're looking for pressure signs in your rifle and your cartridge. And I could go on all day with this stuff. I'll try to cut it short. But what do you look for in pressure signs? Sticky bolt lift. If you've got a bolt action, any, any way you're opening your action, if it seems like it's really sticky or tight, suggests that that cartridge has really expanded a lot in the chamber and it's hanging on too much pressure. Once you get it out, look at the primer. If there's a crater, a rim around it of the primer's crater where the pin hit. If the rim is raised up and around it, like you drop the rock into pudding and it came up and formed a nice rim, that elevated rim suggests maybe a little bit too much pressure. Or the primer flows out until it's flat and flush with the pocket in the head of the case. So you just learn to see those things and you understand these are all signs of increased pressure. You can also use a micrometer to measure the head of the case. That's right above the uh, extraction groove. That's the webbing part where it's solid brass except for the hole where the primer shoots fire through that primer pocket area. Um, if that expands significantly, that suggests you've got a lot of pressure in there. You'll get have to get your dimensions from the hand-loading manuals and see what those are supposed to be, but you're getting pretty technical when you do it that way. So those are the signs to look for. All right, good luck with that, uh, loading that one up. That's an unusual 308 chamber, it sounds to me, if you really, unless you're working with really tiny bullets, like 110 grains or something. All right, from Colorado, Bruce, what is the freebore? On your, oh, mine, what is the freebore on my 22-250 Acme Improved that I discuss in my videos? Do you have the reamer drawing? By the way, I love your videos. Well, Bruce, I'm glad you love my videos. You're probably not going to like this answer very much because I don't know. <laughs> I do not know what it is. Um, I could go to my books and see where I'm seating my bullets and get my length, um, and that would give us a great idea. But as far as the reamer drawing, I give you an easy answer. This was a custom rifle by Daryl Holland of Holland Gunsmithing, Holland Guns. You should be able to find him online. I think it's just hollandguns.com. He does uh, impeccable work. He's a perfectionist, and he builds them beautifully accurate rifles. He would know because he made it. One and eight twist, 22250 AI. I bet you he's got the same reamer. He could probably work with him. All right, John, Indiana. Hey, Ron, I'm confused about a cartridge bullet size and the naming. 
For example, 6.8 millimeter bullets are 0.277 inches in diameter. 0.27 inches in diameter is actually 7.0358 millimeters. Seven millimeter bullets are 0.28 inches, and a 2.8 inches is actually 7.2136 millimeters. I am not sure what I am missing. Maybe the conversion calculators are incorrect. I sure appreciate your YouTube videos. John, I have covered this before, and it's a common question. And it is due to general numbers, nominal dimensions. It's just easier to round things off. I mean, if you're shooting a 7 millimeter, you've got the bore diameter. And some countries, Britain, will say, well, we're measuring it by the bore. So they call the 757 Mauser the 275 Rigby. Because it's that's the the land to land measurement should be 0.275, and it actually isn't even that because it's they they vary a little bit and they make them a little bit smaller so there's a good seal in the bore and all the rest of it. But then your bullet diameter is 0.284 inches, and then you measure groove to groove, and it's a little tighter than that because again it has to seal. So it's mostly an issue of rounding things off. Who wants to go around saying I'm shooting a 7.2136 millimeter Remington? <laughs> it's just not going to fly. And then the other problem is a lot of companies will name a cartridge that isn't even really close to the actual dimensions of the bore or the bullet or the groove diameter or anything. Uh, 219 Donaldson's Wasp shoots a 0.224 bullet. Um, 223 Remington. It's really a 222 Remington that's been stretched, made a little bit longer. And neither one of them says 224, but they both shoot 224 bullets. <laughs> and the 38 cartridge, that's really goofy because it's not the bullet size. It, uh, that's a 35, but it's a dimension of the case. So they have just over the years made all sorts of goofy numbers. We'll look at the 360 buck hammer. That's a brand new one. They should know better by now. It does not shoot a 0 .360 diameter bullet. <laughs> it's just a 35, 358. So... Uh, but it's a clever name. There are too many 35s out there. They needed to stand out. 360 buck hammer, close enough. So that's what's going on there, John. I hope that helps you out. <laughs> hey, I think that is mm -hmm, end of the line for questions this time, folks. I uh, want to thank you all. If you're looking for an interesting read into the river of life, Ian Player, African, has some interesting insights into his life as a conservationist in Africa. I uh, found it to be pretty interesting. I picked it up on a, one of my trips to Africa. I always try to pick up an African book for the read on the on the way home, and that one was pretty fun. Uh, so you might want to check that one out. Oh, it was actually written by Graham Lynn Scott, not Ian Player. It's a biography of Ian Player. All right. Fun stuff on Africa there. Hey, this is Ron Spomer. I appreciate you folks listening in on this podcast. If you have some corrections, send them in. We'll read them next time. And if you have some ideas for some future broadcasts on my regular YouTube channel, we're always looking for great ideas like this one about the three, uh, 35 Wayland 30 out 6 of 308 Winchester or 358 Winchester. We'll be doing that one here real soon. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Hunt honest and shoot straight.